Welcome to this edition of the JNNP podcast. Today we're discussing the recent review article, Visual Hallucinations in Neurological and Ophthalmological Disease, Pathophysiology and Management. Joining me to discuss their paper is Professor John O'Brien, who's Professor of Old Age Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. He's also the National Institute for Health Research National Speciality Lead for Dementia. And Dominic Fitch, who's Reader in Visual Psychiatry at King's College London and Consultant in Old Age Psychiatry at the Maudsley Hospital, where he runs a National Specialist Clinic for Visual Hallucinations and Related Symptoms. So uh, a very warm welcome to you both and thanks for joining me on today's podcast. Um, I might start with you, um, uh, Professor O'Brien. John O'Brien, can you tell us a little bit about the frequency and uh, types of visual hallucinations experienced by patients? Yes, thanks. Well, perhaps it's important to say what we mean by visual hallucination, which is uh, perceiving an object in the absence of that object actually being there. And we tend to distinguish hallucinations from illusions, which is a sort of misperception of an object. So maybe seeing a, a stick on the ground as a snake or something like that. And hallucinations can be very varied in, in nature. And the, the type of them and their content and the frequency they occur can all help point to the cause and the differences seen between sort of different patient groups. Sometimes they can cause distress uh, to people, but sometimes they, they can't. And that's important to, to ask about. And also people may or may not have insight into their hallucinations. In other words, they may recognise them as the fact that there isn't something there or, or they may not. In terms of frequency, I think it's important to say that they're common, particularly in older people. And indeed, that was one of the motivations for um, the SHADE programme and, and our paper uh, to bring this uh, together. And they can be a normal phenomenon. So normal people may experience hallucinations when they fall asleep, hypnagogic, or, or when they wake up, hypnopompic, very brief hallucinations at that time. And in bereavement, which unfortunately is a normal experience, it's not uncommon to have visual hallucinations. But in that case, they're usually um, specifically of the deceased person. And maybe around 15%, maybe slightly more, people after bereavement may experience a brief visual hallucination of the deceased person. They can also be associated with um, recreational drug use, uh, including alcohol, particularly alcohol withdrawal and are seen in delirium and epilepsy, and can be side effects of prescribed medication, and that's particularly important. One of the conditions that, that we talk about are Parkinson's disease. Diseases we focus on in our paper are, are eye disease, dementia, and, and Parkinson's disease. And in people with eye disease, and we're thinking here of diseases uh, of the macula, but also of the cornea, hallucinations, a syndrome called Charles Bonnet syndrome, can be seen in, in up to 60% of people. Um, they're often what we would call sort of simple hallucinations. So these might be, be colours, uh, shapes or patterns, or sometimes sort of fairly simple faces or things like that. In terms of dementia, they're commonly seen in different dementias. Um, they're seen in about 10 to 15% of people with Alzheimer's disease, maybe around 10% of uh, people with vascular dementia. But up to 70% of people with uh, Lewy body dementia, and indeed recurrent uh, visual hallucinations are a characteristic feature of the disease, so much so that there's been a core feature in, in diagnostic criteria for dementia with Lewy bodies. And in dementias, um, they can be varied, they can be simple, but they're often complex 
and fairly fully formed. So, for example, people, animals, often very colourful, uh, maybe moving, very sort of florid, vivid. In Parkinson's disease, hallucinations are seen in similarly high rates, and maybe it's slightly even more complex situation there. So, well, the majority of people with Parkinson's, actually, if you follow them long enough, may experience visual hallucinations over time. Uh, they sometimes change over time, and so they may start with uh, people describing illusions, and maybe um, the feelings of presence or passage, that's that someone else is, is there close by them or that something's passed by them very quickly. And that over time, uh, often these, these may lead on to visual hallucinations or there may sometimes be a complex mix of all these uh, present in, in people at, at any one time. Mm. So, Dominic, um, the reason uh, for people to get hallucinations, I suppose, continues to be uh, understood. But your review does provide some um, some overview of the neural mechanisms which underpin the genesis of these hallucinations. Um, perhaps you could summarise um, some of these processes. Yes, well, well we think about uh, kind of two aspects of mechanism. Uh, one is what's happening in the brain at the time a hallucination actually occurs. And that's a more challenging type of question to ask because you need to have patients that hallucinate for you in the scanner or while doing an EEG experiment or something. And in fact, most of the evidence for that comes from eye disease, from Charles Bonnet syndrome. Uh, and we do know that there is an, a, a kind of spontaneous increase in activity in the visual cortices at the time you have a visual hallucination. That there's, there's perhaps some evidence that it might be slightly different in Parkinson's disease but really, we don't fully understand uh, what that mechanism is. And uh, obviously, if we had some way of, of interacting with that mechanism or modulating it, we might be able to stop hallucinations at that transition point. But by far, the overwhelming amount of evidence comes from studies of susceptibility to hallucinations. So that's uh, kind of brain changes or functional changes that predispose you to having visual hallucinations. And there's uh, I guess two, at first sight, it seemed like rival theories to this, um, uh, or, or groups of theories. So one of them emphasizes an imbalance between top-down processes and bottom-up processes. So by top-down, we, we're really talking about different forms of attentional mechanism and executive function, perhaps. And bottom-up, we're talking about perceptual mechanisms. And the idea is that some uh, change in the, in the dynamic interplay of those two processes leads to hallucinations. And, and there's lots of evidence for that, mainly derived from Parkinson's disease. Uh, there's also some evidence from Lewy body dementias and, and, and other forms of dementias. And then the rival kind of uh, theory is derived, is mainly neurophysiological and comes from eye disease. So here, it would use a different language. You're talking about deafferentation of, of sensory cortex, and you're talking about hyperexcitability of, of early visual areas. And, and as I said, these seem to be mutually exclusive accounts, but it may just be that these the deafferentation uh, ideas are a sort of a particular example of where the bottom-up processes are predominating. So there's very little contribution from the, the top-down mechanisms, um, but you, you might see them as still consistent with a single framework of uh, hallucinations. And Dominic, furthermore, with regard to, to the, the mechanisms, what do we know about the imbalance in neurotransmitter systems, which may uh, underpin uh, some of these hallucinations? So, so we know that the mechanisms that underlie the, the changes in top-down and bottom-up probably don't relate to 
pathology in in the brain so it's you can get visual hallucinations in parkinson's disease for example long before you've got uh, lewy body deposition in the occipital cortices so so it's the change in function is much more likely to be due to neurotransmitter changes and the ones that are implicated are the, the cholinergic system uh, there's emerging evidence that the serotonergic system is is important particularly in parkinson's disease and there's even some evidence that the dopaminergic system uh, perhaps through frontostriatal circuitry is, is linked to hallucinations as well so all of our treatments kind of target these three uh, neurotransmitter uh, systems. And John O'Brien, you've um, already given us a great overview of the three main disease groups associated with visual hallucinations. Uh, what, what is the current uh, best practice we have in terms of managing these symptoms? In terms of management, uh, whether we're thinking of Charles Bonnet syndrome, Parkinson's disease or dementia, there are some general principles that would apply to all three uh, conditions. The first of which is the need to actually ask about them and, and pick them up because obviously one can't proceed with management without knowing that they're there. And so it is important to ask people if they're experiencing visual phenomena and hallucinations and also to ask particularly with people with dementia, family members and, and carers because the person may not always be able to report it themselves. And there may be other reasons people don't spontaneously report hallucinations, they're, they're worried about them, there's maybe stigma attached, um, they're afraid of admitting to something that, that seems very unusual. And uh, indeed, although it's not a word I would use, a common thing that I hear from people who are experiencing hallucinations in their carers is that they haven't said anything before because they're worried they're going mad. Um, so it is important to ask people about them. There are other causes, as uh, we heard about, for visual hallucinations. And so to check that these are not the cause, uh, for example, any medication, um, any concurrent infections uh, that the person may have um, before assuming that they're a core part of the syndrome. But if they are, and as we've said, they're commonly seen in, in Charles Bonnet syndrome, Parkinson's and dementia, then it's important to think about whether there are any particular triggers for the hallucinations uh, in individuals, whether there are any situations they're in that they're more commonly occurring, because it might be possible to uh, minimise their exposure to these. So common things are, for example, when, when their attention is not engaged or, or when lighting is poor, things like that. It's important to optimise uh, vision, whatever the, the condition, to see what can be done with that. And the explanation and support is the, the mainstay initially to um, explain to people that these things they're experiencing are actually common and they're a core part of uh, the condition that they have. They're not necessarily something new. And people can be very reassured uh, about that and uh, find that a great sort of comfort. It's important to think whether the visual hallucinations are actually distressing people or not. If they're not, um, and maybe they don't occur that, that frequently, they're not distressing, they may not actually need any further management beyond the sort of explanation, support, and sort of uh, monitoring. And turning to the individual conditions, in, in Charles Bonnet syndrome, often this general advice and support may be uh, sufficient. Uh, because the hallucinations are uh, associated with poor vision, then optimising vision in that patient group is particularly important. And there are some studies that have shown that uh, improving vision 
um, for example, treatment of, of macular degeneration uh, with some of the monoclonal antibodies, if it improves acuity, it is associated with a reduction in hallucinations. The self-help therapies that have been advocated for people with Charles Bonnet, the use of eye movements, um, distraction, uh, alterations of, of lighting. And although there's some case reports of other medications, medication isn't really the mainstay of management in Charles Bonnet syndrome. In Parkinson's disease, similarly, the general advice and support is important. In Parkinson's, it's particularly key to think of any uh, medical, pharmacological triggers, drugs that people are taking. It's quite challenging to manage people with Parkinson's because not infrequently the medications given to help the motor problems uh, actually uh, can cause or exacerbate visual hallucinations. And sometimes it's a balance um, between which is the, the more significant problem clinically. Some uh, medications for Parkinson's are particularly problematic in terms of causing hallucinations. So anticholinergics, monoamine B inhibitors, uh, dopamine agonists and COMPT inhibitors. And the Parkinson's medication that's the least likely to be associated with visual hallucinations is L-dopa monotherapy. But of course, that's not possible for all patients, particularly as disease progresses. There is some evidence in, in Parkinson's for the use of antipsychotics. Um, the best is for a low-dose clozapine that can be helpful. And that's now licensed in, in many countries. Uh, Quetiapines um, are also used, although there's... Um, slightly less evidence-based, and new agents such as uh, pervancerin that acts on the serotonergic system uh, is licensed in some countries for psychosis in Parkinson's disease. Turning to uh, dementia, I mean, beyond general advice and support, and here particularly carer support is, is really very important because of the impact uh, that the problem has on carers. There is some evidence uh, that cholinesterase inhibitors may be helpful especially for Lewy body dementia. There's also one study of memantine suggesting reduced hallucinations in Lewy body dementia, but really more evidence is needed and the evidence base is not particularly strong. Antipsychotics may be helpful, um, but there are obvious dangers in people with dementia because of the well-recognised uh, risk of, of stroke and increased mortality and adverse reactions uh, in Lewy body dementia. So really the use of antipsychotics for hallucinations in dementia should only be done really as a last uh, resort, very cautiously, under expert guidance, always choosing an antipsychotic drug and, and starting at very low dose. Okay, that, very, very helpful. Um, so Dominic, I might turn to, turn to you and, and ask you um, in a more general sense, uh, the consortium you put together, um, which focuses on visual hallucinations, what was it that uh, made you decide to, to do this? And perhaps you could talk us through some of the framework uh, your consortium has developed in terms of improving diagnosis and management in this area. So, so the paper is based on a an NIHR program called SHAPED, which was a study of hallucinations in Parkinson's disease, eye disease and dementia. And it was, it was conceived about 10 years ago now. And the, the issue at the time was that we were, we were recognizing that visual hallucinations were high prevalence in all of these conditions and, and high morbidity, but they were really evolving entirely separate literature streams. So there was no kind of recognition of what was going on in the eye disease world in the Parkinson's uh, literature and, and vice versa. And 
also there was no kind of recognition of real world clinical scenarios where uh, we recognize that lots of patients uh, in an eye clinic might have some cognitive impairment or similarly uh, in the Parkinson's clinic have, might have some eye disease, but all of the trials and all of the evidence uh, were uh, excluding those people. So the idea was that if we brought together expertise across these conditions, we might come up with some new kind of ideas um, of treating uh, the, the, um, the, the symptoms that was found to be helpful in one condition that might kind of transpose to another so that gave us the kind of transdiagnostic viewpoint. And uh, one of the main targets or the main objectives of SHAPED was to produce some new guidelines that uh, would, would be common to all conditions. So not specific for individual conditions and kind of capture elements that might be helpful for everyone. And, and John has already summarized some of the elements of that. But I, I, just to highlight a key a key point. So it's not really advising about specific medications, because as we found in our uh, working groups, that there's, there's really a very uh, limited amount of clinical trial evidence on which to make specific medication recommendations. And so it's more about the thought process that a, any clinician might go through when confronted with someone with visual hallucinations. And as John has already mentioned, treatment really starts even before hallucinations begin because of this stigma issue and, and forewarning patients and having some mechanism to uh, actively seek evidence of uh, hallucinations in routine kind of clinical follow-ups. And then the idea that not all hallucinations need treatment and, and some of these um, psychoeducation and supportive measures may be enough. And I guess one of the key points that we found in, in the work group was that trying to define more clearly the point at which hallucinations become more of a clinical problem. So when the point when you, you change from having uh, just support and helping the patient inform them and, and how to deal with hallucinations themselves to the point where you need to start thinking about other interventions. And that seems to be defined at the point when patients begin to have fluctuating or partial insight. So that's when the hallucinations become more of a clinical problem. And what that means in practice is that when the hallucination occurs, the patient acts as if they don't understand what it is. So they might phone the police or call for help or become highly distressed by it, believing it to be real. But by the time they come to clinic or when prompted, they'll kind of recognize, oh, yeah, that was a hallucination. But the point is that they're beginning to behave as if they don't understand it at the time in, in a repeated way. And that is the point where you need to start to consider one of these medication options or psychological therapy. And the other aspect of the framework that, that is new for SHAPED is the, the, the focus on the carer. So we began to understand that actually at this transition point when hallucinations become a clinical problem, the onus of uh, a problem, if you like, shifts from the patient to the carer. And when we're thinking about treatment, we have to think more broadly about supporting the carer and, and giving them ways in which they can support the patients having the experiences uh, when, when we're thinking of, of uh, treatment in these more general terms. And finally, Dominic, your paper, the, the, the last closing paragraph of the paper talks about uh, future priorities, which there are clearly a lot of in this area. Uh, what do you think in particular these are for uh, the area of research and visual hallucinations going forward? So this, this was a big uh, focus of, of the workshop, and we kind of distilled a couple of key elements. And, and I guess the most important one 
is related to the fact that we don't currently have very good scales for hallucinations. We don't have very good outcome measures when we're thinking about the clinical trial space. Uh, so we really need to develop new ways of capturing hallucinations uh, that don't depend on a kind of the standard retrospective questionnaire or tick boxes or, or perhaps semi-structured interviews that we're using now, which are not ideal. So if, if we can find sort of new ways of measuring hallucinations, that's going to be a key future uh, research priority. Another area is, since we've spent so much time identifying this key transition point when hallucinations start to become a clinical problem, uh, we need to be able to define that a bit better. And uh, having ways of capturing partial or fluctuating insight or some change in insight, that's going to be very important because we need to be able to show that or measure that in some way to uh, help clinicians make the decision to say, well, this is where I've got to start um, uh, some kind of intervention. And then the, I guess the final thing was that we, we wanted to keep the ethos of shape going forward and argue for more transdiagnostic approaches in clinical trials. So not being based in silos and just looking at Parkinson's disease where you exclude any cognitive problem or, or eye disease. You want to look more or design clinical trials more around real world patients where you are allowed to have a bit of comorbidity because those are the, the types of clinical problems that clinicians are most likely to encounter. Well, that brings us to a close. I want to thank uh, Professor John O'Brien and Dr. Dominic Fitch for giving that excellent overview of their uh, recent review article on visual hallucinations and remind all of our listeners that the article is now available for download in full and for free at the JNNP website. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>